How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Welcome to How Hard Can It Be, up close and personal with the real people in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and you can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap or MikeTrap.com. Janet Krauss grew up in a household with two people living as their best selves, realizing their potential and doing what they loved. She spent the better part of her time since leaving home trying to figure out what that means for her through a remarkable set of experiences as a student, entrepreneur, and professor at the very top of those professions. After working for her hero, Anita Roddick, at the body shop, Janet founded Circles with a friend from Stanford Business School. She led Circles as its CEO for 10 years, building it into a thousand-person company before leaving to start another business and a family. After a personal invitation from friend, mentor, and living legend Bill Salmon at the Harvard Business School, she joined the faculty of HBS, where she stayed until coming across what just might be a chance to become that best self. As the co-founder and CEO of Peach, a clothing and apparel maker empowering women to elevate their everyday as both buyers and sellers of products that fit and wear beautifully. It all began much more humbly, though, through an experience we actually shared, selling kitchen knives door-to-door. Here's my conversation with Peach co-founder and CEO, Janet Krauss. We're just coming off a lovely lunch down at Tico. Um, and you were telling me about, about your hip challenges? Yes, I was. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry to be of the age that I can talk about hip plant yeah. challenges, but it's true. Um, now, uh, and my, my, I observed that this is a common thing among former college athletes, so you obviously <laughs> pl- played a sport in college. But. I did. It actually started before college. It started when I thought what I was meant to be in life was a figure skater. Oh, right. Yeah. And I am five uh, ten and not flexible. All right. So these tricky. Yeah, tricky makes it hard. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's go. Let's go back to the very beginning. And and um, I know a little bit about this. You are the first sister of a uh, podcast uh, um, interviewee. But uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, the intersection of 84 and 91, so the pit stop <laughs> on the way from Boston to New York. Um, to parents, mom, uh, dad was, actually they had a funny life. They did a role reversal in the middle of life. My dad was the entrepreneur and my, uh, no, my dad was the co- company man. No, we had it to start. My dad was the entrepreneur and my mom was um, not working and then she became an entrepreneur and uh, my dad became uh, a company man. And then my mom, at the age of 40, uh, went back into corporate America, started as the uh, assistant head of HR for Hartford National Bank, and that was at 40, and at 65, retired as vice chairman of Fleet Bank, at one time running the largest retail operation of banking in America. Wow. That dynamic between them where one... One was an entrepreneur and one had a real job. Yeah. Like, was that an explicit thing that they talked about or did it just work out that way? I don't think it was explicit. I think it was, it just was, had a natural rhythm. I don't think my dad thought of himself as an entrepreneur as much as a small business owner. Yeah. Um, and my mom, uh, her experience, I think, was more happenstance, really. Uh, she's an incredibly smart woman with a ton of drive and 
her career in banking was sort of um, not intentional, and but became very intentional. So right. When you left home to go to school, um, what did you aspire to do? So it's interesting. What I will say, I think I was more intentional. So I was looking at parents that had had both entrepreneurial spirit and um, were corporate corporate icons, and I. I sort of felt a little akin to my dad, who I would say is sort of more the natural entrepreneur. Um, and, you know, one of my first jobs out of college was selling Cutco knives door to door. And, and Oh, my God, I did that. Did you do that? I totally did. Oh, my gosh. The Bachelor Spatula? The Bachelor Spatula! <laughs> did um, you ever cut the penny with the uh, scissors? Absolutely. I, I love the super shears. You, you got it. The... Um, so I, I, I've often said that, that that job has had more impact on the way I think about business than any job I've ever had. A hundred percent. It is the most underappreciated skill in the world, and you don't know how to sell until you can sit across the kitchen table from someone and sell them something. That's right. Absolutely. And um, and your, your your question was, what, what did I aspire to when I took the job selling Cutco knives out of Yale? My father was like, go, girl, uh, go. You're freaking me out. And my da- my mother was like... <laughs> What did we just pay a this salary this this education fee for if you're not going to go do something real? I did the same thing out of Cornell, and it elicited a similar response. My dad was like, you know, like you know, my dad had had great disdain for marketing people. Um, and you've become one. Well, yeah, I know, sadly, <laughs> but I've I've risen above my marketing inclinations yeah. to be a marketing guy who wants to sell shit. Yeah. Um, which which is good in my dad's eyes, but he, it was his advice to say, hey, listen, if you want to be a marketing person, go go figure out how to sell because mm-hmm. that's the problem with most marketing people that's is right. they don't know. Um, but it, but it did it did make my my mother uneasy that I'm I'm you know carrying around a bag of knives. Uh, with a double D edge and with a thermo and a thermo resin uh, b- with a bowling ball handle, nickel silver rivets that don't expand and contract. Do you have cuts on your fingers from cutting leather and, tom- and tomatoes? Absolutely. You know, a sharp oh. a sharp knife is a safe knife. <laughs> I, I don't know if you realize that. I, I, well, of course, that's what um, I said. That's what I said. So uh, that, that's amazing. I, that's I, why um, we like each other so th- much. That speaks volumes about you, actually. You too. Um, all right. So, what did you major in at Yale? I majored in um, political science, yeah. um, and it's really interesting because I recognize now that what I liked most about political science, which I could have done in social science or anything, I liked studying people. Right. I really liked to understand. I remember even uh, earlier than that when I would see the Wall Street Journal, and remember they used to do the little you know heads things, I was so curious as to who that person was and what motivated them yeah. and what was their reason for the the thoughts that they had, the values that they had, the point of view that they had, um, which is very different than like a political philosophy kind of approach. Right. Um, and I recognize now that it is, um, it's because I'm so interested in what drives people at, so that I can be both a marketer and a salesperson and an entrepreneur. Yeah. I say often that, um, you know, to be a marketing person is to be a student of human response. Exactly. Um, and, and you have to be someone who, who gets you know the validation cookie in the way someone responds to something that you create? Yes. As opposed to something that derives that sense of self worth from the creation itself. That's right. To watch in the political setting, whether it was uh, historical um, or present, you know how people go about creating that sense of emotional connection, right? Uh, based on what and how. Exactly right. Exactly right. All right. So uh, I'm sure you sold a lot of knives. I did. Did you sell a lot of knives? You know, I did very well in I my region. 
Um, just one more anecdote because I can't believe like you're so, so, so taking me back. But um, but I, I went to my manager and I kept selling like you know the the, the six inch knife and the whatever and I could sell the chef's knife. But there was this one knife that that uh, it was the carving knife and I just I just couldn't sell it for whatever reason. And I went to my manager and. And he said, you know why you can't sell that knife? And I said, no, why? And he said, you because you it. don't believe in it. Yeah, you don't use it. You, um, don't, you don't love it. And, um, and that's another like key thing. Like, when I, again, when I look back on all the shit that I learned, like two Ivy League degrees and whatever, and, and there's, there's, there's no experience that shapes me more, I think, than, than that, what I learned on, the, on that job. My number one learning on that job was maybe they um, – uh, maybe they didn't t- train you the same way as they trained me, but th- what they trained me is all the way through the conversation, all the things, and then you open up this big poster at the end, which shows the six hundred dollar knife set in the in the block, and and my manager trained me. You open that up and you say, now I know we've we've looked at a lot of things today, but I would be completely remiss if I didn't ask you, would you would you would you buy would you buy this set? Yeah. And then shut up. Yeah. Let them, because the number <laughs> yes. of times that you give them options right. or you're inclined looking at their face right. to give them options, just be quiet. No, that's right. It, it I is, sold the $600 block no, of knives right. almost all the time. It, it exerts a, an entirely reasonable level of social pressure on the other person to respond. Mm-hmm. All right, so what pulled you out of the knife business, Janet? My mother. Yeah. <laughs> I sold $50,000 of knives in three and a half months. It, was, it is to date the most lucrative job per hour <laughs> that I've ever had. But she said, look, honey, I mean, w- you really need to like go use that Yale degree somehow. And um, not coerced, but co-opted me into believing that I should go get that consulting job that everybody else had left Yale and gotten. Right. Um, which was actually, I mean... There was a lot, I, I didn't like any of it, but I, but there was a lot that I learned in that too that um, also told me that I was a salesperson because I was selling business as a, an associate sort of by accident, you know, be like, you know, in with the, with the client being like, oh, well, the next thing I think, gosh, where we're going is so exciting. Maybe where we should go from here. And my, my, my manager would be like, okay, she's selling. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, uh, and so I did the consulting thing for... Um, almost three years. Uh, and then it was in consulting that I had my, that I'm an entrepreneur. So here's how that story goes. I was uh, working on, X, I wasn't working on Excel. I was in Lotus 1-2-3. You know, Lotus 1-2-3. Absolutely. Two, Many people out there won't. Um, where you actually had to push F9 to recalculate. It didn't recalculate on its own. And so I'm working on this incredibly complex spreadsheet, hundreds of cells long, wide and long. And um, it doesn't show up red problem anywhere until you push F9. So I push F9. It's like 2 a.m. in the morning, and every cell goes to ERR, error. And it doesn't tell you where your error is. (laughs) And my manager's about to call me from the West Coast with, like, the answer to exactly what the sales forecasting should be, which, of course, is, you know, entirely wrong no matter what I've done. Um, And I... I literally sit back in my chair and I'm like, I don't, I like, you can see me with my hands behind my head. And I'm first, my first set of words out of my mouth is, oh my God, what am I going to do? Oh my God, what am I going to do? And then it's shifted to, no, what am I going to do? Like 
this is not what I'm going to do. Right. Like literally my mind went from what am I going to do to get out of trouble with my manager and fix this problem to know what's my life going to be like? Cause it's not right. this, this is not what I am wired to do. And so I just shut my eyes and I let the images come into my brain about the things I had done in my life that I'd actually really enjoyed. And it started incredibly early with um, organizing my neighborhood to have uh, talent shows where I would charge, charge um, people to come see their, their kids do cartwheels in my backyard um, instead of letting it be free in their backyard and, you know, I, you know, just creating um, things out of nothing to selling uh, vegetables in a red wagon all around my neighborhood with the garden that my dad and I did to making headbands with, you know, wires and gimp um, and selling them to all my friends. And then, of course, Cutco came into my mind and I was like, what is that job? And I kind of stopped and I was like, is that a salesperson? And I was like, no, it's not a salesperson. It's more than, I like, I'm old enough that like thinking of yourself as an entrepreneur, it wasn't like, you know, the celebrity job exactly. to have. Yeah. And I was like, no, I like to make the whole thing out of nothing. And I like to create uh, an energy around something that has a value that people want. I think, I think I've read about this. I think this is like an entrepreneur. I think they do that at Stanford. <laughs> and that was my, my moment of like, I think I know where I'm going. Do you feel like seeing the experiences of your parents shaped that thinking? Or was it more an aspiration to some far off ideal that you didn't really fully understand? Well, you know, I felt like not cog cognizant, but my dad was living his right life and my mom was living her right life. And so I wanted to live my right life. I felt like they were both very satisfied in their paths. And I also think part of being an entrepreneur, having an entrepreneurial mindset is um, it, there's optimism in it. There's hope in it, right? There's always like, you can imagine what it would look like if things were what they're meant to be. Right. Um, and I come at everything that way. Uh, and every, right, you, an, an entrepreneur looks at, op, uh, at challenge and sees opportunity. Right. Or an optimist does. Sure. And um, so I just figured this wasn't it, so what must it be? All right, so from the moment of that epiphany, tell us what you did. What did you do immediately? What did you do the next day? How did you go from that to, you know, you know start the journey that uh, has brought you here? Yeah. Um, so there were a couple of uh, interim, interim steps before that actually happened. I had wanted for a very long time to live abroad. Um, so I took a, I took a, a sort of time out and went to Brazil and worked in Brazil, uh, for working with homeless kids just because I felt sort of like a limousine liberal from Connecticut, super preppy, like lots of opportunity and, um, felt like I needed to just ground myself in, in other people's reality. Yeah, good for you. Um, and so I did that for a year, but from there it was where I was applying to Stanford and I went to Stanford and I met, on the very first day of the orientation, because we were out kayaking, a woman, and she had come to business school having written her essay about Anita Roddick, the founder of The Body Shop, Skin and Hair Care. And I immediately bonded with her because I said to her, I want to leave here working for Anita Roddick, um, entrepreneur of this amazing um, uh, social marketing behemoth around uh, skincare. 
so we bonded, and in the bonding, we sort of said to ourselves, "Well, gosh, we you know we sit, we obviously have similar interests, and we used business school as an experiment to discover whether or not we would be good business partners, right. and did a lot of things from running the first year show to starting a small business to deciding that we would be entrepreneurs. So when we when we left business school, um, she didn't feel like she had enough money in her bank." to start right off the bat and become an entrepreneur. Um, and so we both went off and took jobs. I did get my job with Anita Roddick, and she went to work in Silicon Valley. And a year later, she was getting married, and she called me and she said, okay, so I'm, I'm getting married, and I'm actually moving back to the East Coast. And I, at the time, was living in North Carolina. That's where the body shop was. And I said, oh, okay, my, my heart... Skipped a beat, happy for her to get married, but also dropped a, a little bit because I was like, okay, if she gets married, then the next thing is she'll want to buy a house, and the next thing is she might want to have kids. Like, we got to start this thing now. Yeah, yeah. And so I said to her, I'm going to move back to Boston. Let's get something started. She's like, well, what are we starting? I was like, I don't know. Let's just, get, let's just decide that we're going to look for something that we both feel passionate about and start it. And um, that's what we did. We actually took us almost a year of uh, no income and no salary to, to, to land on something that we both felt really good about. So what was the business you started? So the business that we started, um, it's first of all, I want to ground you in time. We launched it before Amazon. And um, I'm sure you've heard of Angie's List. Sure. We weren't that. I'm sure you've heard of uh, Care.com. Absolutely. We weren't that. We were both of those before Amazon. Got it. So we did childcare and we did um, service providers. Childcare was the lesser part. Service providers was the bigger part. Uh, uh, online in a database that you could self-serve. Um, and we built that. Uh, the website took $400,000 to build because that's what it took to build that kind of database-driven website at, the, at that time. Uh -huh. Like there were no tools. And we launched it. And um, it was called Circles. And crickets, like literally nobody showed up. And we realized that, um, you know, there was no online marketing. There was no Google. There was no paid search. There was no even, even um, uh, visual, uh, visual ads at the time. So we were all doing offline um, advertising. And the one thing that we did was we did a late night uh, radio ad you know, we got the space uh, super cheap because someone dropped out at the last minute. And we went out and we're like, hi, I'm Janet and I'm Kathy and we're Circles. And this is what we do. We got nobody come to the website. <laughs> nobody. But the phone rang. And we hadn't even marketed a phone number. So we were like, oh my God, what we have built, somebody wants. But the problem is they don't want it online because they don't even know www.anything does anything. Right. And all that marketing that went into .com.1 was literally just training people that they could do things online. And we were way too young and way too um, naive. Actually, I, I think we were really smart. We're like, we're not going to raise $100 million. We don't have a track record of any kind to, to, to put the weight behind this that it needs. So we said, okay, we're going to have to serve people offline. And we said... And that's a bummer because we just built a website for $400,000. But who out there cares about the service that we've just created? And um, we realized we realized there were a couple markets, but the, bigger mar the biggest market that we identified was credit cards who had, um, they had air and car and hotel 
already plugged in the high end con- the high end premium credit cards, and we pitched them on what about everything else in someone's right. life? What if they need a dog walker? What if they need a plumber? And it expanded from there. What if they need a gift for somebody? What if they need? And it got really. Um, into the into the novelty. So, you know, what if they're traveling to Nigeria and they're going to meet with a king who is also in government? What is the appropriate gift? Real ask. Turns out the appropriate gift is a flock of sheep. Who and, knew? Who, who knew? And so, um, and so we delivered that. But but that's how the service evolved. And um, it was because we identified that um, credit cards had a need for more um, expansive services to be able to uh, uh, get the premium they wanted for those cards. Sure. Sure. So so I encountered that business, I think, initially um, as a um, corporate benefit. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That would be, that was the first market that we, yeah. that we used was as an employee benefit. And then um, it was American Express. That's who you ended up building a relationship with over time. We right? had almost all the major credit cards yeah. by the time we sold the company, but Amex was the door opener that, that blew open the market, that made the market a market. Yeah. So, so quite a ride there. I it mean, was. not too bad it was. For, I, for your first time out of the gate. But it was a 10 year overnight success. Sure. Which is what, you know, more often, the re- we see these ones that come out of the blue and they're you know bought for a billion dollars in two weeks. Yeah, that is the exception. Right. The the vast majority of companies that make it to successful outcomes have worked really hard and long to um, to get there. How hard can it be? Is sponsored by G Twenty Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of twenty of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G Twenty Ventures, people first. If you're enjoying this conversation with Janet, be sure and check out my conversation with her little brother, Bessemer Ventures partner, Steve Krause. That's episode five of How Hard Can It Be? Available wherever you're listening to this. I hope you'll check it out and I hope you enjoy it. While you're there, please consider giving us a quick five-star rating. It really helps us spread the word. Thanks. How did that experience change you, do you think? Well, I mean, it's 10 years, so I grew up a lot. I think probably the most profound way, so you have to think about my the business. It I had, at, at its height, 1,000 employees, most of whom are call center employees um, in three call centers, uh, both in the U.S. and Canada. I think the, the way it was to change me most was going from being an entrepreneur to being a CEO and leader. Right. Um, and I think that, st- that climbing the journey from incubated little baby idea up to and through scaling and being a CEO, that profoundly changes you as a, as a human. You know, we're, we're talking the day after Travis Kalanick's been um, asked to uh, take an Uber uh, someplace <laughs> else. Um, and, you know, I wrote a piece uh, in Medium about, about how much that job changes Oh, it changes from so much. Uh, from scrappy startup to and and how you have to change. You have to exert conscious effort to change yourself. That is, um, it, it's when you're an entrepreneur. Like when you're in a in a corporate system, the system is helping grow you up because you always have a boss right. who's kind of teaching you what the next step looks like. As an entrepreneur, I think self awareness and and careful study of the fact that you have to be 
a learner, deep learner, and um, continuously asking yourself, can I take this next step and what does it require? Right. Um, is what really separates this career path from others. Because you have to really, I mean, sometimes you get a coach or a mentor, but still you have to want to do it and ask yourself, can I take this next step? Am I made for that next step? Yeah. And it's hard because because the steps you've taken up to that point have reinforced the behaviors, right? So you're abandoning the behaviors that have made you successful in some ways. It's a, yeah, what got me here won't get me there. It's a cruel, it's kind of uh, you know evil in a way. You know? <laughs> it is. It's hard. It, it really is. It um, is. Um, uh, and it's so, you know, you, we talk a lot, you talk a lot about reinvention of business models, but like as an, as a, as a, as an entrepreneur, if you want to go from beginning to end, you have to reinvent yourself about every 18 months. That's right. How did you know it was the end of the road there for you? Um, the market told me. The market told me I had gone out on maternity leave, and when I left on maternity leave, I said to the board, when I come back, you know, I think um, our growth is going up and our profitability has hit awesomeness. And so I think from uh, the time you've been in as investors um, and market readiness to buy this service, I think, I think it's there. Um, and what happened in the time that I went out from maternity leave to when I came back is the phone had started ringing. People were literally like placing inbound calls. Are you, are you, are you interested? Is this the time? And I was like this, and it, I had, I, I, I called it at lunch with you too. Um, I have spidey sense sometimes. It doesn't, I don't know what it is. I just like feel something. So yeah. you have to put yourself in time and place. This is June of, um, 2007, Started the sales process in July of 2007. We closed on October 31st of 2007. And what happened in January of 2008? Yeah, the ship went bad. The ship went bad. Yeah. And um, had we not sold then, I would still be CEO of that company. Wow. Because also, in addition to the market just falling out from the from the everybody, um, the iPhone was introduced right. and the app became a reality. And so all the services that I was providing on a phone-based system, you could now start to get here. Yeah. And so uh, the value shifted. Right. Um, amazing how something so unrelated ended up just you know, changing the world in a way. You can't time the market, but market timing is unbelievably powerful. Yeah. So as we also talked about at lunch, I'm still like, you know, the puppy VC here in week <laughs> six. But um, one of the pieces of advice that my partner Bill gave me is is when you're meeting with someone and you leave, like, because all these, you know, we don't meet with any stupid people. We don't really, we hear very few stupid ideas. Like, it's always like a smart person looks great, you know. And, he, you know, he said, you know, part of it is is you want to step back and you want to say, why this? Meaning, you know, why does this solve, is an acute need, like all the market stuff, the product. Second is why them? Meaning that if the, if there's a good answer to one, multiple teams are going to get involved. Um, and we're only going to back one of them. And why is this the team we should back? And you need a good answer to that question. And the third question is why now? Mm. Meaning what has changed in the market mm -hmm. to create this opportunity? And why is now the right time to put money into it, given what we expect on the horizon? And and those three questions, like I really do use them. It's what I'm thinking through as I meet with an entrepreneur to think about like, what are the things that are likely to succeed? And of those, it's re remarkable to me how important the answer to that third question really is. Yeah, you know? no, it yeah. is. It is. You know, the, the, the why now on circles, why, why Angie's List and Care um, 
worked and circles had to evolve was because um, they were five years later and the technology had evolved and user user awareness of how to utilize you know web-based services right. for transactions. Amazon was launched. Like, why now? A million things had changed. So what did you do after the sale? So um, sold on October 31st, 2007. Um, had had babies in the meantime. They were twins. They were seven months old. And um, so I did what every first-time mom and twin mom and uh, seller of first company. I started another company the next day. Yeah, good. November 1st. Because why, why screw around, you know? Because why screw around? No, I think it was... I think it was Combination of okay, woohoo! I did this. I can do this. Yeah. Plus, um, after you have babies, you lose your mind. It's true. It uh, not forever, just for some period of time. Yeah. It's a little different thinking in there. I felt like, and this is interesting. And some people may love this answer or may not, but it's my answer. Is um, I think I was afraid to go home and start being a stay-at-home mom with seven-month-old twins because I was afraid I'd never re-emerge. Right. And um, so the idea of starting another company felt more familiar. And I always knew I always wanted to be a working mom, but even the thought of going home for some amount of time felt felt scarier than starting another company. I know, uh, it's weird. Uh, that's really it's insightful. I, I, I totally believe that. I get that completely. All right, what was that company? So now I knew, now I know high end travel and I know the high end customer and I know you know um, how she he or she consumes both information and services having done circles. So we looked at TripAdvisor and we said, look at where the properties on TripAdvisor end. It kind of stops at like a Ritz Carlton ish price point quality, right. and people think of that as being high end, and it is. But there's a lot higher end than that. Sure, it goes up from there. And so we felt like there was, albeit small, a niche market for the ultra high high net worth um, that didn't have access to really good information and transactionable information about the high high end lifestyle. And um, it was a gr- it was a great idea, and it was an absolutely beautiful website that we built, and we started to get customer traction, and then the same thing happened, two thousand and eight gutted the high-end travel sure. world, even the wealthiest were not spending on high-end travel the way they had three months ago because nobody knew. Right. So um, here we had just built this thing and the question became, do we wait it out or do we, or, or do we pack it up? Um, so we waited it out and tried to think about um, other business models that we could, because our, our revenue was just gutted because it was based on CPM advertising mostly. And then Google came along and CPM went away and, and these high-end properties aren't spending money on marketing. So we thought about more transactional things. Um, but by about 2010, when the market really hadn't come back strong enough, we're like, okay, I think we're not going to... I said to my investors, I know you'd put more money in. I don't think you should. Yeah. And so we sold. Tough. Tough. Ups Tough, and the downs. Yeah. That's what it is. One win, one loss. That's I'm right. batting that, 500. That's what it is. Not too bad. It's... it's <laughs> All right, so what'd you do after that? So then, after that, I honestly was very tired. Yeah. Um, now my kids are three. They feel a little less intimidating because they're walking and cued and talking and things like that. Um, but I still didn't think that going home was the right answer, but I really didn't know. I, you know, Once you're an entrepreneur, you're kind of unemployable. Can't have a real job. It doesn't feel like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I went over to talk to Bill Solomon at HBS. He'd been um, an, a mentor all along, both my companies, an investor. And I said to him, Bill, what do I do now? Like, where does, where does someone like me go? And he literally, it was like that. He looked at me and he was like, well, of course you're going to come and teach here. And I was like, of, cor of course I am. What? He's like, well, think about it. You've had one win. You've had one loss. You totally know how this game is played. By the way, you're female. That doesn't hurt. We don't have enough of you around. People are going to love you. Come teach. And I was like so like stunned and flattered and thinking, man, that's, that feels right. Um, I, was, I was surprised. I, took, I said yes right off the bat. Um, I think I went in thinking, I, I know how to do this. Um, it's hard. Teaching at Harvard Business School is, it is um, really amazing because you are not telling anybody anything. Right. You're only Socratic method asking questions. You need to guide the conversation to the learnings that need to happen. You need to board the good thoughts on the board. You need to do that while turning around to pick the next hand up that's going to move the conversation. And you have to remember every single thing that they say because they're graded on their answers. Right. Um, so... You, it is a, it is a, it is a big learning curve, but um, it was, it was fun. It was really fun. It wasn't forever, but it was fun. So for the, for the benefit of those who don't know, Bill Solomon is really quasi legendary figure yeah. at HBS, and, and you know, is the man, you know, for all things entrepreneurship. I mean, Howard Stevenson is probably at that, at that level. Howard is, I think, is actually coined the the definition of entrepreneurship as the pursuit of opportunity without regard to resources currently controlled. Nicely done. He um, please. But, um, but Bill Solomon, um, that is the class everyone wants to take. It's the hardest to get into at HBS. Um, and I know Bill is just sort of retired Retiring. effectively. Yeah. But, um, you know, he still is a larger-than-life figure to anyone that went to that school and had any kind of inclination to, you know, any kind of entrepreneurial inclination. So Well, he, he was, he was um, I didn't say this as part of the um, circle story, but I, I, I knew he was the guy that needed to be known here in Boston, and I was a Stanford grad, so I, I, didn't, ha I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't know him. So I, um, I could have just walked in the front door of Harvard and asked for a meeting, but I thought I would like to, I would like to network to him in a different way. So I found him at a, a conference that he was speaking at, and I talked to the conference organizers. And I said, could I please be seated at his table? And they said, yeah, I think so. I said, and could I be, please be seated one seat away from him? Because I don't want to look like I'm stalking him, even though I'm stalking him. And... Um, so I purposely wanted to be a little distant so that I could talk about this new business I was starting without like turning to him and being like this. So he, he leans in as he hears that I'm talking about a startup and a new idea, and he asks a little about what it is. And he says, like that, he says, um, can I write a case about you? And I said, no. And he said, what do you mean no? And I said, I haven't done anything yet. Like, it isn't even like real. And he, um, he looked at me and he said, I have to be honest with you. And I was like, okay. Women say that. Women do that. And I was like, like, I was half furious, but like also intrigued. I was like, what do you mean women do that? He's like, women want to make sure the baby is completely formed and beautiful and well-bathed with cute clothing before they take it out. And that is the wrong approach. You need to stand on the rooftop and declare success 
and make it known that this thing is for real. And what better way to do that than a Harvard Business School right. case before you're even launched? Right, because that's what men do. Because that's what men do. <laughs> that's what men do. And I and I and I and I literally I was like, all right, I'll do it. So that was how that's that was my beginning with 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 Bill Solomon, and he has been awesome as a mentor and a champion for the last twenty years. What was it like being um, an academic with all that that all, all the negative and positive connotation that that comes with? What was that like for you? Um, so it was very different than I anticipated because um, I got into it for the teaching, and um, really the teaching happens three times a week for ninety minutes. Right. Um, and I loved being in that space for those in the pit. I loved it. I loved the energy. I loved the bringing out the good conversation, the debate. Um, but there's a couple things that happen. So, so I never thought of myself as an academic because I was a practitioner and um, I wanted to be steeped in, in research, but that wasn't my career path. I was a utility player. That's literally what they thought of me as. It was sort of like, hey, who's going to teach this course? Well, let's get Janet. She teaches anything. <laughs> so in you were the Mikey. Of, I was the of, Mikey yeah. of of Harvard and business school. And um, so I, in in four and a half years there, I taught six different courses, which is an incredibly hard learning curve. These these getting your head around a, a curriculum and delivering it well takes practice. Sure. Um, so I found the practitioner place in Harvard. I found it. I mean, I felt I felt very valued. I did. I felt very much like they wanted me there because I added that reality uh, of of entrepreneurship. Um, but it was it was um, uh, an interesting thing to be a, to be a utility player. And then the other thing that I found about academia is that I love people and I love teams and I love collaboration. And students leave every year. Right. The class goes away. Right. And so you've invested all of this in and then sometimes I would come into the pit and be like, okay, team, I mean class. <laughs> like sure. And so all I all new faces. All new faces. And I think for people who have grown up in that, that's that they they that's fine. But I was like, but, but, but Yeah, yeah. So um I missed the team part of life. I loved the teaching and then the prep for a case at Harvard Business School, it's 10 to, it, for, a new, for a new class, is 12 to 15 hours of prep for one 90-minute session. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of being alone. You sure. have a teaching group, but like you really have to work, um, work to be able to be as good as you want to be. Yeah. All right, so, uh, so what pulled you out of there? We, we, had you made the decision to, that that had run its course, or did you encounter something that you couldn't say no to? Yeah, no, I, I had not um, thought that it had run its course. Um, I was I was really enjoying it, and I was doubling down into actually academia, which is what the question you posed: research on women in entrepreneurship and high velocity yeah. entrepreneurship, and cracking the code. Right, the data after twenty years in the same business is that four percent of venture capital goes to women started, women run. Ventures, um, which essentially means none, yeah, <laughs> yep. right? Because ninety-six percent is almost all, um, and so it's a very tricky path that women go through to figure out how they're going to stand out ab- over and above not only every other woman but everybody else. Um, um, that had become sort of my my purpose, my raison d'être. And then it was a person who walked through my doors. He was a Babson grad, and he was a guy. 
Um, and I, I was really, t somebody in the ecosystem had said, Derek, you need to meet Janet. She's going to get what you're doing. She's going she's gonna to love the female angle of this. And she's going to sort of understand the channel and the distribution and the product. And, and that was right. So Derek showed up. And it wasn't right out of the gate, I'm going to join you. I joined his board. And I, and I, I've been doing a lot of that as a, as an entrepreneur. I mean, sorry, as a as a as a professor, I was doing a lot of boards. I was doing a lot of investing. I was doing a lot of advising. So it was just joining another board. Um, but as I watched what he was doing and observing the things about him that make him really good, and thinking about how the things that I was thinking about were completely not on his radar screen, um, I was like, he needs a partner. He need, and I think it needs to be a woman. And frankly, I think it needs to be a CEO because the part of what he's doing that he doesn't um, have is the sales and marketing and um, the storytelling um, and the making people see something larger than it is. And so I said, let me. So I said, Derek, I think you need this. He said, I think you're right. I said, I can help. I can. He said, What do you think the profile is? And I said, Well, to be honest, it's someone just like me. It's just that it's not me. Um, I am perfectly happy doing what I'm doing. I'm loving my summers off. Um, I'm right where I want to be. And so I started to do a search for him with him. And about, I don't know, maybe two months into that, I rolled over to my husband. And I, because I, I had been waking up, you know, I'd study Rent the Runway and I'd wake up thinking about Derek's business. And I was like, honey, I think I'm going to do it again. He was like, I, I knew you were. I just didn't know when you knew you yeah. were. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, I became partners with Derek Oley. Um, we were pursuing uh, uh, a, new, a new channel um, of distribution that is of sort of kind of version 2.0 of direct selling. So, so a Chloe and Isabel or a Jay Hilburn or a Stellan Dot. Um, but for apparel, and in particular for, we started with the main hook of the value proposition was the bra, a bra, and other, and other uh, undergarments. And the, the emotive part of the value proposition was that women deserve to feel strong and beautiful and comfortable in their skin, and the bra selling and the bra buying experience is anything but creating that sensibility. So... Yeah, so that's that's I I left Harvard in 2015, and we really launched in 2015. For the benefit of the men in our audience, <laughs> what is what's special about bras? Oh man! So think about the fact that the the only other object of, of apparel that you wear that does a job is your shoe. Everything else just sort of covers in some way and maybe accentuates. A bra has a job to do. And think about wearing elastic with wires on your body 24-7. Um, if it doesn't fit well, it really is um, a painful, literally, experience. But more than that, more than just the, the fit and the pain of the fit, the process of buying a bra is one of the most vulnerable moments of a woman's apparel shopping experience. She's, for the most part, left to herself to hunt and peck through stuff that doesn't feel good. Naked in a room that is gray with bad lighting where all you do to yourself is say like, God, why didn't I take that run and why did I eat that cupcake? <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's, you know, I call it the itty bitty shitty committee. Um, women have this little voice that talks to her all the time saying, super not nice things, and she deserves not to. And she deserves to be 
cared for in that moment of buying this 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 item that um, if it fits well, it doesn't feel like anything, it makes you stand taller. Actually, it makes you look like you've lost 10 pounds because the girls are where they're supposed to be. Right. Um, so it can be a transformative experience, but most of the time it's a soul-suckingly depressing experience. Right. So it's not just the bra, it's this experience that wraps around it, which is why the model of a, of a stylist coming to you in your home to get you fit was the core of the initial value prop. Right, so, so that's a good segue to explain... What is peach? Explain it in the context of this horrible experience that, uh, <laughs> that men don't have to deal with. Well, as you know, because um, we talked about it at lunch, Peach, ha- peach has expanded its product um, value proposition quite a lot since the initial days. But the, but the essence of the brand um, is, is, is elevating women to be their very best. Um, and so we call our tagline, Elevate Your Every Day. Um, so that the product that you put on your body makes you look good, makes you feel good, makes you stand up. But also the talk track in your brain, it, you know, we're a brand that's helping you to release some of that stuff that you do so that you, um, the, the, your heart and your mind and your body are aligned to, to take on the world. Um, uh, so that's the essence of the brand and the, and the product line today ranges from bras where we started to and through athleisure, which also has a lot of room to, uh, to expand on and improve on, um, that we're taking advantage of. You know, I wonder if, it, you know, it has to feel good that, that rather than spend your time trying to figure out why there weren't more women entrepreneur CEOs out there raising capital, you decided to be a woman entrepreneur CEO out there raising capital. I mean, um, I'm sure that irony is not is not, not lost on you. No, it was actually it's 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 um it's awesome that you noticed that. Thank you. Um, I was asking myself the question literally of um, do I if if my job in this if if I was put on this planet to help move the needle for women in um, their power to be fully expressed humans and and as a specific category, fully capable entrepreneurs, was I going to do more good in the study and the helping of a small group or by building a platform that allowed me the possibility to talk to millions and put into work hundreds of thousands? And I decided that um, it was closer to my essence to be doing that um, versus the academic approach, even though I got a lot of satisfaction. This is what um, lights me up completely. Peach co-founder and CEO Janet Kraus. So impressive. So much positive energy. Work to be your best selves, folks. You got to do something in this world, and it might as well be that. Be sure not to miss out on my next conversation with a major luminary of the Boston startup community. Look for How Hard Can It Be on your favorite podcasting platform and click that big subscribe button. Thanks for sticking around. I'll see you next time.